Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. We have one dozen delectable DVD delights coming your way from the Warner Archive Collection this week. New to DVD or returning to DVD, either way, you're the winner as we talk about a phenomenal television series that's a Warner Archive Collection favorite, Cheyenne, Season 6. And we have 11 feature films, 10 returning to DVD from Paramount Pictures, and one MGM film starring one of the biggest Paramount stars who was on loan out, Mr. Bing Crosby. <laughs> so let's go through the order of the features. We have Going Hollywood from 1933, and also starring Bing Crosby at Paramount 1950, we have Riding High, directed by Mr. Frank Capra. Then we have My Geisha, Red Garters, All in the Night's Work, The Evening Star, on a clear day, you can see forever. The Big Bus, The Beautician and the Beast, Stuart Saves His Family, and Fire in the Sky. So we have a lot to talk about. Delectable entertainments from a myriad of decades. But let's start with the big guy himself, Mr. Clint Walker, as Cheyenne Bodie, as season six comes your way on DVD. One of the things I noticed after that, and this is sort of an aside, is that the closing title card only has two men on horseback, which would indicate that Sugarfoot had rotated out at this point? I was going to say, yes. Why is that, Dan? Mm-hmm. Ooh, because it's like spot a clue. Sugarfoot was no longer on the air. But Sugarfoot has just arrived at the Warner Archive Collection Season 1, and you'll be getting more seasons in the future. So, so his horse traveled to the future. <laughs> That's right. In the TARDIS, which is not that easy for a horse to do. 1963, yeah. I mean, we talked about it before, but the thing to keep in mind with Cheyenne is Cheyenne for its seven seasons, has a longer-than-normal span of time. Right. And so by 1961, Clint Walker had actually been playing the character of Cheyenne for quite some time. Because it started in 1955 as Mm -hmm. part of the Warner Brothers Presents rotating trinity of television programs. The other television programs did not survive that initial season, but Cheyenne triumphantly remained on the ABC schedule until 1962 or 63, I think 63. And there was a whole year where there was no Cheyenne, but there was the Cheyenne show, as we've talked about. So how many more seasons do we have after this? This is your penultimate trip with our peripatetic pistolero. And uh, unless there are unforeseen obstacles in the way, and I doubt there will be any, we will be bringing you season seven, the ultimate finale of Cheyenne before Christmas. And that will mean that the entire series will be available for At last. Clint Walker fans everywhere. But should, this is the second to last season. Should we have Clint Walker come in at, at the end, you know, to come in and give us some life lessons? Are, are you asking me if we should talk I'm to just, Clint? I'm also we should asking always talk to I just spoke to him last week and <laughs> I told him this. So, I'm very excited. We're we're waiting for you to come back to Burbank, Clint, you know, so. I think uh, that would be great. He's always welcome. But I I think, doesn't he still travel, like, from town to town solving (laughs) problems every week? Well, he was just in, uh, I believe, Phoenix or Uh um, thereabouts at at a convention. He travels all over the country because he's got millions of fans all over the world and thousands of rabid 
dedicated fans that visit his website and continue to correspond with him. And God bless him, he's just such a force. And the impression that he made as Cheyenne, I think, influenced generations of television fans and now DVD fans. Who are some of the guest stars on Cheyenne Season 6, Dan? Well, fans of the Western genre will be especially pleased to see a young, pre-Good, the Bad, the Ugly, Lee Van Cleef. But also, fans perhaps of a film known as Magnificent Seven will like to see someone named James Coburn. Personally, I was excited to see a very young James Hong, who is a brilliant character actor most famous for playing the Eye Man in Blade Runner. And there's a future uh, Oscar-winning best actress. Oh, yes. Ellen Burstyn. And was she Ellen Burstyn yet? Or Ellen McRae. There we go. Ellen McRae. There we go. There you go. I think that fans of Cheyenne who have seen the previous five seasons will not be disappointed. There's some really, really, really great episodes in this set. There's a a Cole Younger episode, because we've talked about him in other westerns. When he was a gunfighter. How many episodes are in in this one total? Thirteen. Because it's it's one of their shorter It's a a baker's dozen, because he was alternating with Bronco. The cattle quarantine episode. It was actually quite sharp writing. I didn't want to spoil anything. But when they figure out what the problem is, viewers of today familiar with other diseases will go, ah, that was was probably a little too obscure. But you'll see when you watch the episode. Well, even if your cows get mad while you watch Cheyenne, (laughs) you won't want to miss season six. Four-disc set of 13 episodes now on DVD from the Warner Archive collection. Let's move from the small screen to the big screen. From west to west, though. And from Warner Brothers to MGM as we go Hollywood with Going Hollywood, a rarity, a musical directed by Raoul Walsh. And I think that's very surprising when when you look at the (laughs) people who have directed MGM musicals. You don't expect to to see Raoul Walsh. After watching the film, I was like, oh, wait, wait, who directed this? And then I went, really? The screenwriter didn't surprise me. I was enjoying how clever the script was. Then I saw it was David Ogden Stewart, who's, well, he's famous for a lot of things. probably most famous for Philadelphia's story. But... But it was produced by Walter Wanger, who also produced uh, Stagecoach years later and many other wonderful films, both as an independent producer and a studio producer. But this was a cosmopolitan production because it was overseen by uh, William Randolph Hearst's company, like Cosmopolitan Magazine, and starring his real-life leading lady, Marion Davies. Top billing. In some ways, for modern viewers, Citizen Kane has has sort of overshadowed her real career, plus the fact that she married the richest man on earth at the time. Well, not but quite married. She stayed unmarried. She yes. was very unmarried, well, right? We're in a palimony end. state. It's cool. <laughs> She's terrific. I mean, really, really. Like, I agree. This is sort of her platinum blonde persona, too. It was it Well, it's a little bit of that, a little bit of Jeanette McDonald, yeah. a little bit all her slapstick it's comedy all in there. Her. She plays a stalking psychopath that you adore. She's teaching at a school with a bunch of spinster ladies, but she'd rather be in Hollywood going after well, this singer who's very much crooner. like like Bing Crosby and, in fact, played by Bing Crosby. Now, the question about... She heard, him, she heard him on the radio, yeah, ins- and then that's, that his, involves the stalking because she decides... That got her on the choo-choo. She follows, she follows him to, out to Hollywood. Yeah, follows and him directly sort of out to Hollywood. Shadows him the whole way. The structure of the film is... Uh, the opening of the film is very 
big and crazy and giant musical number, yeah. wink and a nod, tongue in cheek. And as we move out to Hollywood, as we move from like the supposedly realistic to the artificial, <laughs> the film actually becomes more realistic. Very early in the film, there's a big production number that's it, set at Grand Central it, it's Station. It's amazing. At, and of course, it, this was one of the big jokes in 1974 is That's Entertainment, which Bing Crosby was one of the 11 hosts of That's yeah. Entertainment. Since Bing was a Paramount star and had only dabbled at MGM, how do you explain his being one of the hosts? Well, they used the clip of Going Hollywood, and then he said, uh, well, after you saw that, it was over 20 years before I returned to MGM, and then they went to high society. But Bing was loaned out by Paramount, where he had just, he was a huge star on radio. He had made short subjects for Max Sennett, which were distributed by Paramount, and then he was in the big broadcast, the 1932 film that had lots of radio stars in it and became like virtually overnight a screen sensation as well as a radio sensation and a recording sensation. And he had brought, I don't want to say associate sexy with Bing Crosby, but he had brought a sensuality, I think, oh, to yes. singing. <laughs> yeah. That oh, yeah. He's ogled in this movie. No, I mean, right. that yeah, reason. No, and it was basically Jolson, then Crosby, then Sinatra right. in, in yeah. the yeah. panoply of, of male singers. But, but I have a feeling that, like, Bing had more fainting teenagers than Al. Yeah. People trying to understand Jolson now by looking at his older films and look, listening to his recordings doesn't really capture kind of the effect that he had, but it was bringing a sense of passion to right. performance. What Crosby does here is more subtle. Makes and, him a perfect object of uh, affection in this film, like well, as, a, as a goal, because he's almost impenetrable. I'm watching his song sequences in this, which are, are as delightful as it was to watch Maurice Chevalier a few weeks back. I was really struck by, you know, the the old rube, the old saw about Elvis being a giant crossover hit because he was a white guy that could sound like a black man. But then you listen to Bing singing and, you know, you hear the jazz, you hear the blues, but you also hear this mainstream pop sensibility, which is really all his thing. Yes, and that's kind of the Jolson, yeah. Crosby, Sinatra, Elvis. Yeah, it's, and all, then, it's this then one continuum. Yeah. Bing was the first pop singer to, you know, to kind of do scat singing, if you will. Right. He did a recording of Dinah with the Mills Brothers where there's scat singing, and I think that's in the big broadcast. I can't remember for sure, but I think it is. He was known as a jazz guy. Now, he was part of a singing group called the Rhythm Boys, and he was the breakout sensation mm -hmm. from the Rhythm Boys. The Timberlake of his time. And he was, yeah, I mean, it basically, yes. And, and he was in, the Rhythm Boys were in the King of Jazz with Paul Whiteman in 1930 at Universal. And uh, the rest of the Rhythm Boys drifted basically into obscurity and Bing became a superstar on radio and on recordings. Uh, I think his recording of White Christmas still holds the record for the biggest selling single. Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Because people are still buying Exactly. It. There's no doubt about it. It's either that or Monster Mash. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and now when you take Bing in that context as like a super pop star, then the dream sequences in this where Marion Davies' character has these weird fever dreams 
kind of makes a lot of sense because you see it's like the ultimate fan dream. I just watching this and then Riding High, which we'll talk about in, mm-hmm. in a second. Yeah, uh, yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> They're very related. Uh, in I'm wondering if Bing had a thing in his contract about I have to have a bow tying sequence. <laughs> Because both films have this prominent thing with him in front of the mirror, very adroitly tying his bow tie, you know, putting on his straps, singing a little bit. Now, when he's putting on his bow tie at the beginning, singing Beautiful Girl, (laughs) which is, by the way, not written for this movie. Uh, it was written for a movie that was made a couple of months earlier called Stage Mother. Yeah. A lot of people, including myself, for a long time thought it was written for, for this. But That's it's an Arthur Freed, Nacho Her Brown song that everybody knows from Singing in the Rain. And Arthur Freed and Nacho Her Brown were really the house songwriters in the primo spot at MGM. And they wrote all the songs for this film. But um, the guy holding the microphone, the uh-huh. radio technician, if you will, is Sterling Holloway, who would later, of course, become the voice of Winnie the Pooh and uh, did many commercials into right. the 70s. And that little <laughs> shtick with Sterling Holloway and Bing as right. Bing goes to the little Bing room right. while he's still singing. <laughs> right. And then Sterling Holloway peeks through the door. Yeah. And well, you know, there's a lot of things in this film that make your jaw drop a little bit. Yeah, and it's, and the enormous amount, the copious amounts of loached absinthe that Bing Crosby consumes. Pre-Cody. Yeah, Pre-Cody. It's, but this is this came out later 34, didn't it? Is it's this? 1933. Oh, 33. This, 33. This so this is, is still pre-code. Okay. Oh, it has to be. You wouldn't be, see people chugging absinthe. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. as we were talking yeah. about it. Okay. But it's Thank really you. a light and lovely film. And a nice spoof, not nearly as witty and cynical as uh, show people, but another light spoof of the Hollywood milieu with Marion Davies. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wanted a quick shout out for Dead Sparks who's fantastic as the director. He's wonderful. The big set piece at the end and then when Marion Davies comes in, I don't want to ruin anything, but she does a big, a big, big number. Oh, the radio segment before that was fascinating. George, do you know anything about those radio The guys? radio rogues, they're actually yeah. in short subjects, and they would imitate. Uh, I actually think it brings the film to a dead stop. It makes it really boring. That's funny because <laughs> I, cause when I was watching it, You liked it, it though, for the novelty. Yeah, yeah. and, and was Morton Downey Sr. in that? Well, no, Morton, no, they're imitating Morton. They're imitating, they're imitating him. Okay, that's, I was, was very confused by that segment. He was, I mean, people know, or some people know, because Morton Downey Jr. is dead now, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. From smoking and that died of lung cancer. And but his powder. father, Morton Downey, was a big radio singer, as was Bing, and as was Russ Colombo. They imitate Russ Colombo, and they imitate, one of the guys imitates Kate Smith. Yeah, yeah. Singing When the Moon Comes Over the Mountain. Pretty good Kate Smith. So yeah, These were good performers. Very I just talented guys. They're in a lot of short subjects. and uh, So this was a little showcase bit for them. And you're right, the narrative does come to It just brings the movie to a dead stop. But that was part of what movies were like in those days. Because it was musicals. like a segment and showing these guys doing and it. And very much topical of the time because, right. you know... People today don't know who some of those people I, are that they're spoofing. The references, you know, like I caught a few, but it was that's why I was asking about it because I'm sure at the at the time it would have been much more familiar. Oh, at the time it would have been as topical as like now. SNL. Somebody, yes. yeah, exactly. If a young person who's let's say. 18 watches an episode of SNL from the late 90s, right. they won't understand the references necessarily. And they're certainly not going to get Samurai Chef. 
right. Now, moving, that would be a real show. Speaking now. of 18, we move ahead roughly 17 years for Bing Crosby and Frank Capra's Riding High, which is a remake of an earlier Capra film called Broadway Bill. Which starred Warner Baxter, and it was a Columbia film, Mm -hmm. and Frank Capra came to Paramount and made two films, Riding High, and then the next year, Here Comes the Groom. And as part of his arrival at Paramount, he had them buy Broadway Bill from Columbia to remake it. So he could make it to his satisfaction. And and have Bing sing along the way. And Riding High is also notable for having a rare solo screen appearance by one Oliver Norville Hardy without mm. his usual partner Stanley McLaurel. So Oliver Hardy is uh, one of the surprise charms surprise of Riding can- High. Yes, yes. I was like, wait a minute. And also a lot of the supporting cast Capra brought from Broadway Bill into Riding High. It's a lot of the, the same people, yeah, yes. Yeah, including, for you Bowery Boys friends out there, Frankie Darrow reprising his role as the morally conflicted jockey. I really, really like this film. It's charming. The singing is great. The story is, it's very Capra. Uh, the Filled end with Capra. Quiet. Yeah, yeah. I cried, <laughs> and, then at the, and at the end, I laughed, and I didn't need to kiss five bucks goodbye. Yeah. It's a charmer, <laughs> and uh, we will have more Bing from his Paramount works in the future. And I have to think, this remake coming out after Seabiscuit probably actually resonated far more strongly with the public because there's a lot of sea biscuity things about this story even though it's an older story that's true you know the the, the unknown horse with the heart of gold right. who's really fast the thing with the mascots uh, and the year before yeah. warner brothers had made the story of sea biscuit yeah. with grown-up right. shirley temple george please tell me about red garters because this well, movie was fascinating red garters <laughs> is one of those movies that tells you right up front not to take itself seriously. And it's a rarity in that it's an original screen musical with an original screenplay and a host of original songs by Paramount, Toonsmith's Jay Livingston and Ray Evans. And Rosemary Clooney was really establishing herself as what I would consider. Now, she she was a personal friend of mine. She was positioned to have a great screen career. Uh, she was a wonderful actress. She was wonderful on the screen and, and she did uh, White Christmas Opened after this film. Mm-hmm. But she was very busy having lots of children, which prevented her from having more of a film career because she was always pregnant. Uh, she's married to Jose Ferrer and they had wonderful children whom I've uh, gotten to know. But I always remarked to Rosemary, you know, why didn't you do more movies? And she said, because I was always having babies. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she later went on to do television and, and recordings. But I always thought Red Garters was made in 3D and not released that way. Oh, that's funny. Well, and it, right. It looks it like... It looks like it would. Yeah, it yeah. looks like that was what they were intending. And it was not filmed in 3D, but it it is... Striking. Striking, and it's, it, they're fake sets, and it, it makes no But it's pretense. more than just fake sets. They're I fake mean, sets that call out that they're fake sets. Right. There's, there's a super strong color palette. For, like, each play setting has its different primary color. I'm pretty sure Warren Beatty must have seen this before he did Dick Tracy, because it's similar to that. <laughs> it's, and I would... Uh, well, first of all, it, the um, and it's, art direction oh, was nominated it, and, for and, an Academy and Award. deservedly so. Very yeah. deservedly so, because it, the artificiality... And this is, you know, a time in theater and stuff where they they were doing this very much on purpose and drawing attention to the 
hyper reality Commercial of the genre. Film. I, I also <laughs> said to Dan that this reminded me of the uh, OK Corral episode of Star Trek. Specter of the Gun. <laughs> yeah. And because of that, the, of the, the, gun. the yellow sand. Yeah, think about it, folks. Probably filmed on... That's on, what I was saying. I said it probably sense. is the same set. It, d- it depends because in the chronology the of Star Trek... The first two years, it was still Desi Desi Lou. Lou. It wasn't until the last season, so it depends where that episode. And I'm not as up on my TOS as my TNG, so I don't know what season that falls into. But it is possible. Where does it fall, Dan? Is it season three? I think it's season three. If it's season three, then it could be. It feels very season three. But anyway, speaking of... And I will know someday, (laughs) but i got to get up on my TOS. But anyway, getting back to (laughs) uh, Red Garters here. Guy Mitchell, who was a Columbia Records recording artist, as was Rosemary Clooney, is her leading man. And he was a pop singing star in the 50s with a charming voice and a sparkling personality. And then Patricia Crowley, who TV fans may remember from Please Don't Eat the Daisies in the 60s, she was a pert young ingenue in the 50s that Paramount was giving a big build up to. And she's also in this film. And it's really a unique musical comedy experience and i think to your point matt i think they were trying to differentiate themselves from the black and white yeah. television musicals that were well, you can commonplace see yeah and you can see it as a sort of like hey you can go to the theater and see a broadway show but almost be even taking it a step beyond broadway and theatricality because it, it oh, yeah. wasn't a static even though it was all very artificial it was a fully developed world very cinematic yeah. and uh that takes us to our next motion picture <laughs> which brings us to the other side of the globe Ooh. and this is uh 1962's my geisha starring shirley mclean and eve montand and directed by a warner archive favorite the director of dark of the sun <laughs> jack cardiff the director no. of the liquidator yeah. jack <laughs> Cardiff. The director of Young Cassidy. <laughs> Jack Cardiff. Now, Cardiff. what's interesting about this movie is Shirley MacLaine's husband of uh-huh. the time, Steve Parker, is the producer of this movie, and he lived in Japan. And they were married, oh. and he kind of stayed in Japan, and they didn't get divorced until 1982. Uh, so they had a, a unique marriage that Miss McLean has written about. Uh-huh. They had a daughter whose name is Sashi. And this, you'll notice that this says it's a Sashi co-production, right. oh. which I thought was a kind of a play on the other famous Japanese film company Sochiku. But in any event, this is a delightful movie, not very Cardiffian. No, but the color. The color is gorgeous, and it is um, a sparkling example of why Shirley MacLaine was so popular at the time. And it's screenplay by uh, Norman Krasna, who's a name we've heard very often on this podcast and yes it's another romantic fable of sorts although this one is quite a bit more grounded sort of it's got it's definitely a screwball in an exotic locale so as the essential setup is uh, Shirley MacLaine plays a a giant movie star and she's married to uh, a French director played by Yves Montand Yves Montand wants to go to Japan to make a realistic yeah. Madam Butterfly, that was the yeah. part I didn't understand. Yeah, it's, well. it's an opera. It's kind of an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah. The studio has cold feet and is willing to let him make it, but it's going to have to be coming in in black and white, and so she makes the decision to become an undercover geisha and still play the lead in the film. Yeah. And that's, we'll leave it at that. Yeah. And Shirley uh, MacLaine 
fools people into thinking she's a geisha girl. We have to mention also that there are no memoirs involved oh, in the no. making of this particular movie. However, the year before... Oh, and Bob Cummings is quite charming in this. As he is in everything. Yes. I'm a big Bob Cummings. I love Me that too. Bob. <laughs> um, uh, the year before, uh, Shirley MacLaine uh, made films at many of the studios, but was primarily uh, Paramount was her primary home for the early part of her screen career. And so there are many Paramount films with Shirley MacLaine. The year before, she co-starred with Dean Martin. Speaking she, of Bing. Uh, she was the female member of the Rat Pack. This is uh, one of the, I guess, the first movie that she made with Dean Martin is, of course, Some Came Running in 1958. Uh-huh. So this is a reunion of sorts, but a comedic reunion, all in a night's work, directed by Joseph Anthony. And if you're a fan of Mad Men, oh, good. I oh, think yes. that this is one of those, we were talking about Mad Men movies. Right. Yeah. This is not about advertising, but it is about publishing. We have so many films about the world of newspapers, and this is a world of newspaper and corporate culture mixing over a lady. And 1961. This and, is screwballier. Yeah, and this has a lot of sort of nod, nod, wink, wink, postcode, pre-code feeling to it in that the, the whole plot rests on an assumption that Shirley MacLaine has caused the death of a publishing magnet by giving him something to smile about. <laughs> yeah, that's a good... She's, she's, well, it's all in the night's work. All in the night's work. All in the night's work. This was, uh, as, as I think I mentioned, directed by Joseph Anthony, who was primarily a stage director who had made several films of stage works at Paramount, including The Rainmaker and The Matchmaker, in which Shirley MacLaine appeared. But he did not have anything to do with the stage version of All in a Night's Work. And I couldn't find very much information about where the play was other than it was based on a play. Hmm. But this is typical of the hint, hint, wink, wink, sex-inferred comedies of the still-enforced code era. And it's very engaging. And they're terrific on screen. And it's a, it's a colorful delight. Let me just say, uh, the next Shirley movie we're doing... is very a, different. A trilogy of Shirley's. And l- 30, it's called... 35 years later. Yeah, it's called Evening Star, but has nothing to do with the newspaper. This is the further adventures of Aurora Greenway, who some people may remember from a little picture uh, that was called a, a Terms of Endearment. Yeah. A little, 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 little <laughs> film. Shirley MacLaine was the veritable Susan Lucci of Oscar nominees. She had been nominated for the Oscar many, many times and never won until Until. finally 1983's Terms of Endearment. And she gave such a great performance in that. And yet it was almost 13 years later that a sequel followed. And the sequel was very different. I think the source material was based on... The same. Larry McMurtry wrote both books. books. Yeah, uh-huh. and uh, but you know, very different th- writer and director of the screenplay. Yeah, this, and yeah, not and James L. Brooks. Not James L. Brooks. And the other thing is, I caught this film years later, unaware that it had been made. I mean, it came I, and disappeared. I didn't Matt, on the other hand, now, didn't know it was a sequel to Terms of Endearment because he had never seen Terms I of Endearment. I have avoided Terms of Endearment because my mother and, and, you know, Mom, I love your movies, but but she talked about it all the time, and the more she talked about As it... As a mother should. The, the less I was compelled to see it. So I'm, <laughs> It's all about mother, mother love. I'm, I'm watching this, and I'm like, 
There seems to be a real big backstory in this movie I'm completely is unaware there? of. And th- there's no true romance in sight as Juliet uh, Lewis oh. as the leading lady. Oh, I saw what you did there. Yeah, yes. I, mean, I, like I heard that. what you did yes. there. Yes. Uh, she plays the <laughs> granddaughter of Shirley MacLaine in this film. And uh, this film did not have much uh, theatrical life and has gone to a second life on television but is out of print on DVD and now we're bringing it back. I just wanted to say one more thing about this because this is a cultural point. And Jack Nicholson also reprises Jack, Jack Nicholson comes in. The movie takes place, it starts, now it was made in 96. Can, but can it, we mention Bill Paxton too? Uh, well, I wanted to get Please. Okay. okay. We, we, can, we heart the Paxton. We, we, okay, Bill Paxton and his romantic entanglements in this are the reason to watch this it's movie. A, it's a veritable twister of a movie. Oh. He's <laughs> on fire. And another weird little side thing is that this movie starts in 1988. It says 1988, which is not too far in the past of 1996, but I will call this the first feature film making fun of 1998, only seven years, or 88, only like six, seven years later because they do a mullet joke. I think people were making fun of 1988 before 1988 happened. Yeah, I mean, what about vibes? Well, it could be right. But it was just interesting to see. But when Bill Paxton shows up in this, the whole mood shifts, and he really lifts this up and, and, and brings in a real good element of comedy, too. Now, it's mi- not game over. No. Not, not at all. And, and Miss McLean is always magnetizing in everything she does, and God bless her, she's still very much a working actress. She's got films coming out that are in production now. She's always working, and uh, it's great to have all of her films available. We're glad to add these three back in print. And also back in print with Miss McLean's leading man in my geisha is on a clear day you can see forever with um, Barbara. She's a little known Broadway Barbara singer. Barbara Jones. I don't know many Streisand. films outside of our own. Oh, what did you say? Barbara Streisand? Barbara Streisand. Oh. This was Barbara Streisand's third film, and this was, like her first two films, an adaptation of a Broadway musical. The first film that she did, of course, was Funny Girl, which she had done on Broadway, and that right. won her the Best Actress Academy Award. The next year, she did Hello, Dolly, where she played a character that was normally played by people who were 40 years older than she was. So that was a change of pace. But the third film, On a Clear Day, was not based on a hit Broadway musical, but a somewhat unsuccessful Broadway musical. The stage musical of On a Clear Day, You Could See Forever, did not have a long run. It starred Barbara Harris and John Cullum, and John Cullum replaced Louis Jordan, who had left the production before it opened on Broadway. Now, if you're figuring out the Yves Montan character, the character is supposed to be French, and John Cullum played him as sort of like, you know, French-Canadian in the stage play. But the kooky girl Daisy Gamble has a previous life. And a show where the psychiatrist brings out through psychotherapy (laughs) the past life of this kooky girl, Daisy Gamble, was enough of uh, fodder for Paramount to say, hey, let's make that into a musical. And Alan J. Lerner, who wrote the lyrics and the book to the play, also was the screenplay author and produced this film. He also produced one of my favorite Lee Marvin musicals the year before, Paint Your Wagon. Greatest movie ever made. (laughs) So Paint Your Wagon was followed at Paramount by On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. 
But at the helm of On a Clear Day, you can see forever is one of my favorite directors, Mr. Vincent Minnelli. So the combination of Streisand and Minnelli and some really great Burton Lane, Alan J. Lerner songs leads to some wonderful cinematographic experience. And we get to see Barbara in short skirts in the 70s and then in plunging necklines in the 19th century. And the Cecil Beaton (laughs) costumes and designs. And we get to see uh, Jack Nicholson in two time periods as well. Oh, yeah. Jack Jack Nicholson specifically did this film, I have been told or I have read, so that he could work in a musical with Vincent Minnelli. And he actually did a song in the movie called Who Is There Among Us Who Knows, which was cut. Um, And a lot of footage was cut from this film before it was released. A lot of the songs that were in the Broadway show were filmed and cut out. So it's a long film, even with everything cut out. And you can see that what you ended up with on the screen wasn't necessarily what was possibly intended. But I think there are some of the most visually stunning Minnelli uh, sequences, especially the one shot in England that right. I've ever seen. Those uh, flashback English sequences are and stunning to look there's, at. There's an interesting clairvoyance ESP hook to a musical. Like, so you got the 70s. It was, you you got, know, and the ESP you got, was big at the time. Yeah. Even Montana is really good in this. And yeah. let me say. And that's great. And he is fan- He's You needed him to anchor he, yeah, the exactly. film because it's all crazy The film is so out him. there. Yves Montand had a song called ESP. <laughs> <laughs> and I have not okay. seen the footage, but I've now, heard the recording of singing ESP and that's my Montand so imitation for the if, day if one of our listeners has clairvoyance or ESP powers they can see the footage and just remember you could also call this movie on a clear day you can see Claire Trevor <laughs> so uh, anyway I saw this movie when it came out when I was very very young and I've always had a fondness for it and I think just the opening alone with Barbara singing Hurry, It's Lovely Up Here and the Nelson Riddle orchestrations. It's, yeah. it's really Nelson wonderful. Nelson Riddle, yes. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I meant to bring up the really great arrangement. And I love that there's almost kind of like a little Brady Bunch feel to the, the color scheme. Oh, you know? yeah. There's shag the carpeting on the floor. Speaking of shag carpeting. We're going to the big bus. Indeed, indeed. Now, if you haven't heard of this film, you should have heard of this film. But this film has sort of been lost in a post-Zucker world, but this is really like the first great disaster movie, movie parody. Spoof. Absolutely. And it didn't do well at the time. I saw it four times. Except for Dan brought up the box office. But on home video in hindsight after Airplane, and and it's not 100% fair to compare this directly to Airplane. No, 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 because Barbara Billingsley is nowhere inside. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, if you understand Airplane and you bring that to the big bus, you're ahead of the game that the audience was at in 1976. Yeah, I think the film was just too ahead of its time. It was just too ahead. Too metatextual. Five years before Honky Tonk Freeway. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's pretty remarkable. Now, now, all you really need to know about The Big Bus is that it stars Joseph Bologna and Starkey Channing. It's got a ton of great cameo guests, Vic Tayback, Larry Hagman, Sally Kellerman, all playing Incredible number. It's a disaster movie that takes place on, on, a, big bus? on a big bus. Nuclear-powered, Nuclear-powered bus, bus that's going to go nonstop from New York to Denver, but curiously looks like it never gets two miles outside of Los Angeles. And staying in the same part of the alphabet, we move ahead two decades to The Beautician and the Beast with Fran Drescher 
and Timothy and Dalton. Timothy Dalton as the Beast. This was released in 1997, I believe. Yes, yeah, 1997. So it was uh, three years into the long-running success of Fran Drescher's sitcom The Nanny, and at the height of its popularity, she hit the big screen with the Beautician and the Beast, and with Timothy Dalton in his post-James Bond role as the Beast. It's really a delightful confection, and we're glad to bring it back. Now, staying on the small screen specter, we have a character that was developed on Saturday Night Live, that being Stuart Smalley in the persona of Senator, now Senator, Al Franken. <laughs> oh, you ruined my joke. I was going to go with the whole, and after this, Al Franken faded away. <laughs> I liked this movie before he was a senator, and uh, this was uh, co-written by Al Franken, and Harold Ramis, and directed by Harold Ramis. And um, I was surprised that Harold Ramis, he's written a lot of great movies, of course, Animal House and, and Caddyshack. He directed Caddyshack, but he only directed a small amount of films. He wrote a lot of films, but he only directed, I think, you know, 11 or 12 movies, which for someone who's got the career and stature that he has, I think he is more prolific as a writer. But... I think this film was very niche-oriented. Very, um, yeah. And the sense of humor is basically a spoof of, I would say, an affectionate spoof of 12-step programs and 12-step lives. And Stuart Smalley is in every anonymous program and codependency program and comes from the most dysfunctional family in the history of cinema, and hysterically so, and a great cast of supporting actors performing as his family. Shirley Knight, Vincent D'Onofrio, Laura Sancho Como. V- Vincent D'Onofrio really Harris stood Harris Ulan as his father. Uh, I love Vincent D'Onofrio in this movie. Yeah. This is before people got to know him from Law & Order, Criminal Intent, which I think is probably what he's best known for, or Men in Black, you know. This is like still post Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, but, right. yeah. but again, it's like, you know, with a lot of these comedies, and we've talked about this, you need people who feel real. Right, really real. And, but and I it, think you really get this is a very real dysfunctional family. Right, I think yeah. that's also maybe like like why you know, the film had some trouble finding an audience at the time of its release. Because that, that, he's, he's a big SNL character. This right. comes from people SNL. People are used to seeing Stuart in this big parody format, and then we come across in this film a very real, very really dysfunctional family yeah. that's you get probably like the one you have dinner with. <laughs> it, it's, it reminded me in a way of Jodie Foster's film Home from the Holidays. Uh-huh. Yeah, Home yeah, yeah. for the Holidays. That was not satire. That had sad moments and funny moments and was real. This film has just that right arch sensibility where you know it doesn't take itself too seriously and yet there's poignancy and a lot of moving moments to it and to combine it with all the Saturday Night Live films that were you know Coneheads and uh, Wayne's World and all the spin-off films this is very different very different of course it this does harken back to the days in a comedy where you they just gave out um, public access TV shows that you can't use that plot device anymore and that's okay <laughs> <laughs> well that brings us to fire in the sky and that's okay fire in the sky for people who don't know is a what you call a sci-fi noir film based on a true event in the 70s a bunch of loggers this is one of the few cases of alien abduction that was actually witnessed by other people right. a group of loggers were going through the woods driving home, driving home and they Late saw a flying saucer and 
One of them did that thing that people in disaster movies oh. do where you go, what are you doing? And he got out of the car and approached the flying saucer. And then gone. And then gone. His friends flipped out, thought he had been killed, took off, realized that they should go back and look for him, couldn't find Wasn't anything. There. And he was missing for many, 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 many days. And during that and time... during that time, these loggers came under suspicion, perhaps for a foul play or right. something else. People really didn't believe them. They stood by their story. So you and bring in Matlock. And eventually Walton, the, the man that disappeared, showed up, yeah. dehydrated, disheveled. To this day, they all stand by their story. And it makes for a really good sort of character movie. I saw this movie when it came out. I really liked it. And I never understood why it wasn't a big, big right. smash. I thought it was going to be a big box well, office. It, it's because, in a way, it's two films. And yeah. there's right. and the way they marketed it is it's X Files, but for it's the a first, floor wax and a dessert. The topic. first, the floor wax floor part. X-Files. Yeah, the floor <laughs> wax files, because the floor wax part in this film is a kind of James Garner mystery. Like I know you guys. It's a very character based film with, with a bunch of really good young actors. Yeah, you know, DB Sweeney. Sweeney, Robert Patrick's really good in this. Craig Sheffer, Henry yeah. Thomas, yeah. E. T. And the resting of the story <laughs> will follow as you develop an affection for Fire in the Sky and the other films that we've talked about this week. Whew. Eleven feature films and a phenomenal television series all make for fine fodder on our website, warnerarchive.com. Now, I think we can't let the occasion go by without talking about our new Warner Archive Instant Streaming Service. What was your favorite new thing to the Instant Service? My favorite new addition to the streaming service has to be Babes on Broadway. Oh, yeah? And Babes on Broadway is the third of the four big Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland, Let's Put on a Show movie. Of course, the fourth movie really isn't a Let's Put on a Show movie. It's the remake of Girl Crazy. <laughs> but this was Busby Berkeley directing Mickey and Judy in between the Andy Hardy appearances and has a great score, uh, including How About You, which was Oscar-nominated, and a big, spectacular finale, which was healthily excerpted in That's Entertainment. So if you're a Mickey and Judy fan, Babes on Broadway is streaming in HD, 1080p, if you have a Roku. And if you go to WarnerArchiveInstant.com, you can get your two-week free trial and see what all the hubbub is about. I wanted to mention the Brute film starring Elizabeth Taylor from 1973 in HD, Nightwatch. And what's cool about Nightwatch is it reunited Elizabeth Taylor with her co-star from the film that won her her first Best Actress Oscar, Butterfield 8, Lawrence Harvey, who is her husband in this thriller that's adapted from a work by Lucille Fletcher, who had written Sorry, Wrong Number. It's a fun little horror flick. And Nightwatch is available on DVD from the Warner Archive Collection, but now you can watch it in HD when you become a subscriber to Warner Archive Instant. Makes you say, Hodoy. Speaking of Hodoy, <laughs> my money's on smart money. Ooh. Could it be because of the two people who star in that motion picture? Basically, if you see the names Edward G. Robinson and James Cagney, that's all you need to know. <laughs> Watch this the is, film. This that's is the only up. film in which they starred together. Oh, that's and, funny. And Jimmy Cagney's role in this movie, it's really Edward G. Robinson's yes. movie. Yeah. And Jimmy Cagney doesn't, it's not 
you know, the the penultimate dream team you would think of of the two of them together. But nonetheless, Cagney's star had risen post Public Enemy, and Robinson was already King of the Hill from Little Caesar. And this is a sharp, witty gangster frolic. Also in HD. Also in HD. Speaking of Edward G. Robinson, I did want to mention that, you know, he's the co star in My Geisha. Mm-hmm. And. It was very funny watching him in that and thinking about Hatchet Man. Because ah. <laughs> you know Edward was thinking about that at the Undercover. time. Undercover. No axes went out? Yeah. All right. And uh, let's also do a shout-out for you Buster Keaton fans. Don't mm. forget that you can see Buster in HD in Sidewalks of New York, co-starring the one and only Anita Page. You can never have enough Buster in your life. What? No beer? So you should get Warner Archive Instant. You can try it two weeks free. Just go to instant.warnerarchive.com. You can view these on your computer window. And right now, if you have a Roku device, you can stream it in HD to your television monitor. Adding new things constantly. And yes, yes, we have no letters, but we can give them our address and a plea for a letter. Please send us letters to Warner Archive Collection B160-8, 3400 Riverside Drive, Burbank, California, 91522. You know, we love letters so much that if you send a self-addressed stamped envelope in there, and maybe look that up if you don't know what that is, you will receive something in return. I think you meant to say SACE and then tell them to look it up. But you know what? Self-addressed. Anyway. That's sort of my joke there is maybe some people don't even know what an envelope is. I'll try to pick up some free swag at Comic-Con and maybe I'll put it in that envelope for you. Yeah, we're we're Uh, Comic-Con bound. And of all 26 letters, which is your favorite, Matt? My favorite letter? I prefer the umlaut. There you go. Schwa. Ach, yeah. (laughs) So on that high note, we'll have to end this podcast, but we hope you will look for the next Warner Archive Collection podcast where we'll be announcing a slew of new entertainment delights to be added to the Warner Archive Collection, both on DVD and in our WarnerArchiveInstant.com streaming service. So until then, I'm George Feltenstein. I'm Matt Tilda Patterson. I'm Billy Bucket. I'm a coward. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.